rock music by itself is an act of radicalism. There has always been a niche group, or a subgenre within the greater group, that have prided themselves on pushing against the status quo and rebelling, to whatever degree that may be. Punk rock is now a bastardized term, a marketing ploy more than a mantra, and a phrase that is going to be defined differently by people within the subculture, let alone those outside of it. And its core punk, and specifically its hardcore offshoot that spawned into existence in the Washington, D.C. suburbs in the early 1980s, has survived by being unabashedly radical, excruciatingly progressive, and unapologetically passionate. Chokehold's 1995 call to action, Content Without Dying, is a record laced with themes of anti-police, pro-choice, and vegan straight-edge ideologies. It's cutthroat in its approach with calls for change, violence, and destruction. And that, above all else, is what makes this an art school album. We're here to take you on a journey through one of the most incredible countries on Earth, the United States of America. And you know, it's my home. It's taken me 20 episodes to finally dive into the world of hardcore punk, and I am so happy that I am finally able to do that, and I'm able to do that with a man who I've talked to, God, it seems like on and off for years now, a man that uh, we've argued at times, we've gotten along at times, at the end of the day, he is a man I have the utmost respect for, and that man is Dylan Hales. Dylan, how are you doing tonight? I'm doing very, very well. I'm excited to do a show that is not about professional wrestling, which is usually what I am, am, am podcasting about, if I'm podcasting at all these days. So it's, it's, it is fun to do something that is a show on something that is an equally significant piece of my life, and maybe in some ways even more significant, honestly. Uh, so that's cool. I'm really excited to be here, Casey. Yeah, Dylan is someone who I came in contact with through the world of professional wrestling. We both love 1980s Puerto Rico wrestling and we don't necessarily agree on a ton else, but that's okay because I love <laughs> Dylan. I love the way he goes about life, um, and he is someone that I knew I wanted to have on at some point because Dylan is someone who, whenever I can, I am in the crosshairs of him talking about music, it always piques my interest because he's always either throwing out bands that I'm a huge fan of or he's throwing out bands that are adjacent to bands that I really like. And starting this year, Dylan on his Twitter, at Dylan Waco, had been posting or has been posting albums of the day every single day. And on that list, you know, he's mentioned a band like Moss Icon, who once I discovered them about a year ago, they completely blew my mind and changed the way I thought about a lot of like the 80s hardcore scene. Uh, Dylan about a month ago posted an album by the, uh, by the, with a band by the name of Julia, uh, which is a super underrated album. I don't know a ton of people that know Julia, but Dylan does. And so I gave Dylan the open invite. I said, pick a 90s hardcore album. Let's talk about it. And now Dylan is here. So first of all, what was the inspiration behind you doing albums of the day? So actually, that's a great question. So a lot last year, a lot of people on Twitter were doing the selfie of the day. If you remember that, that was kind of like a meme that went around. And I didn't see very many people that made it the full 365. I think my buddy David uh, South Atlanta Wrestling on Twitter uh, made it. Nick Iggy, of course, the wrestler from uh, of the Carney's fame. I think he made it the full 365 days. But most people threw in the towel like halfway through the year. Yeah. And and also my buddy Daniel Macabe. Uh, who's a wrestler out of the Pacific Northwest and also a musician, in fact, out of the Pacific Northwest, Vancouver area. He he does this thing where he does the like the dear Twitter meme and he posts an album every, like like not necessarily every day, but here there are a song here and there. And 
like I had wanted to sort of reinvigorate my love primarily for the sort of punk hardcore independent music scene that I came out of in the 90s, but also just more broadly for things that influenced me and whatnot. I, I, that was something I really like almost as a New Year's resolution that I wanted to deep dive back into because I felt so distant from it because of my obsessive mentality shifting so much into professional wrestling over the last several years. So I decided that would be a good way to do that. And even if it was something that didn't have a lot of engagement, it was something that from the very beginning I wanted to do for myself. So it's cool that you and other people have been kind of following along and, and, and enjoying some of it and like maybe learning about new bands or even just being like, oh, I, that's cool that somebody else even knows who this band is. I mean, Julia is a great example of a band that I think is super underrated that you just referenced. Moss Icon is one of my favorite bands of all time. Um, in fact, I actually got to see uh, one of their reunion shows uh, a couple years back, several years back now. But um, so like it, it was just something I really wanted to do. It kind of fit with the New Year's resolution thing and kind of fit with some other sort of meme-ish behavior on social media I'd seen the previous year. And I thought, why not? So how do you find yourself getting into hardcore music? Because uh, you grew up in the South, I believe. Yes. Yes. Yeah, so yeah. Um, so I grew up in Charleston, South Carolina. Like I live in Chattanooga, Tennessee now, and I was actually born in Chattanooga, Tennessee. But it, it, so I kind of have two hometowns, right? Chattanooga, Tennessee is where my grandparents were my whole life, my aunts and uncles. But really, my life w was for almost all of my adult life until the last few years centered around Charleston, South Carolina. That's the the place where I was uh, grew up, went to school, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That's where all my friends were from. And um, Charleston, you know, music wise, Charleston is kind of a weird place because I think nowadays when people if people were to think about uh, the Charleston music scene at all, like probably the most prominent thing that people would think of in recent years would be shovels and rope. OK, um, but and I, I really like shovels and rope. I like Carrie Ann Hurst music for a long, long time, in fact. But but that's that's a that's a very far cry from the hardcore punk sort of universe and ecosystem that existed when I was growing up. But when I was a kid, my gateway was. Um, I grew up in a neighborhood with a lot of other kids, um, frankly, a lot of delinquents. Uh, I was I, I was I was not a skater then. I've never been a skater in my life, but I was delinquent adjacent, we'll say. And, uh, you know, when I was 10 years old, there was a kid, actually a couple of kids in my neighborhood who were skaters. They had a Walkman. They had a they had a mixtape in it. And the mixtape had bad brains and dead kidneys on it. And I was like, wow, this is totally not like any other music because you got to understand i am uh, 38 right now as we record this uh, i was born in 1981 and um it, so timeline wise when i was 10 years old you're looking at this this is a period where we're basically you're looking at the summer of 92 is what we're talking about so this was around the time that nirvana and some of these other bands were starting to blow up right we're in that sort of window of time but there, it, this was not, we were not totally down that rabbit hole yet. There was still a lot of, you know, like when you think of rock, you think of like hair metal. Yeah. yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. Like, like that was still a thing, right? Like, like, um, you were somebody my age was just as likely to like have parents who listened to Billy Joel or to have, uh, you know, their their pop culture or their musical experience to be centered around MC Hammer and Vanilla Ice uh, <laughs> as they were to be somebody that was into rock at all. 
right? So because you know, rock was coming out of that weird sort of period of, of hair metal being the dominant theme and like Bon Jovi being God basically. And when you hear something like that in that context, even if, you know, I think I probably, I'm trying to remember the exact timeline. I probably already heard Pearl Jam by then or like some things like that, but it, it, that it was very, very clear to me that this was something completely different and life changing. And shortly after that, like probably within two weeks of that, I actually heard uh, Gorilla Biscuits for the first time. And I ended up going to my first uh, punk rock slash hardcore show uh, the day after my 11th birthday, which was August 24th, 1992, at a place called the Ladson Homemakers Club in Ladson, South Carolina. Wow. And So you were uh, yeah. infiltrated really young into the scene, which I guess makes me feel better because, and, and you can appreciate this as somewhat of a wrestling fan, but like my introduction to hardcore, I am still, for as many friends as I have where our friendship bonds over music, and for as many people as I solicit music recommendations from on a constant basis, I really don't have a ton of people in my life that listen to hardcore. It's always been almost an isolating factor in my life. The one thing that like introduced me to it was... Uh, former wrestler CM Punk had a documentary come out and I was 12 or 13 at the time and CM Punk was the coolest person on earth to me and you know his public image has soured a little bit since then but like there was a time where if you were into that world of professional wrestling like CM Punk was the coolest person and he had this documentary come out and he talks about how uh, he heard Minor Threat for the first time and Minor Threat didn't drink, they didn't do drugs, and then there's this picture of Ian McKay that flashes on the screen, and Ian McKay looks like the angriest motherfucker on earth, <laughs> and as a 12-year-old who was dealing with some pretty intense anxieties that I didn't exactly know how to process at the time, and just someone that had already felt an intense form of isolation at that point in my life, I said, that, I don't totally know what that is, but that is for me, and so, like, at 12 or 13, really in a minor threat, really in the black flag. A few years later, like I would expand my horizons in Gorilla Biscuits, which is actually the album I thought you would pick. I thought you would, we would end up talking about Gorilla Biscuits because I knew that was a band that you loved. And it was a band that like the first time I heard Gorilla Biscuits, it was just another like stratosphere of like, holy shit, I didn't think you could do this. And it's been, yeah. you know, it's such a delight for me to now as I, I go about, you know, my college years, more and more hardcore bands have come into my life and they've impacted me and, and this genre of music has impacted me in what I think is a really positive way. Yeah, I mean, Gorilla Biscuits was absolutely a life-changing band for me. And we're not going to talk about them today, but we very well e easily could have. I mean, like, I don't know what my life would have been like if I hadn't heard Gorilla Biscuits when I was 10 years old. <laughs> like, like, I mean, it, 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 it legitimately would have been very different. And like, I, I that, that, it, that feels kind of silly to say, but it's just true. Uh, you know, I'm, like I said, a few minutes ago, I'm 38, but I am straight edge. You know, I've been straight edge since the same skaters who were letting me listen to these mixtapes were using it as a pejorative term <laughs> to describe my refusal to smoke cigarettes with them. <laughs> you know, like, I like that is literally how I learned what straight edge was, was by people that were, you know, like into reading Thrasher magazine, thinking I was a wimp because I wouldn't smoke. And then me punching them because even though they were three <laughs> years older than me and them thinking, Oh, you know, like, like it was a, it, that was the, the sort of paradigm to which I entered that, that universe in that space. And it's been, you know, it's been, I still claim it. I don't walk around with X's on my hands or anything, but it is a very, very important part of, of who I am. 
Uh, and it really has been for God, uh, literally almost 28 years, which is insane to me. That is so insane to me that it's been that long ago. But, uh, you know, it's been it's been a huge part of my life for a long, long time. And, you know, gorilla. Bit, I mean, there's so many. But that's the thing, like to peel back the curtain a little bit. When you asked me about doing the show, obviously, I was interested right away. But I, it was kind of a challenge for me to pick a record and I'm actually going to put you on the spot and hope that you'll have me back on a, a, again later on. So we because, can make that happen. We because, can make that happen because, because there was about a dozen that I considered. And then I kind of narrowed it down to two, one of which uh, I, and I won't necessarily mention them, you know, in case I decide later, but like one of which was a band that I had actually played a lot in the Southeast. who I think is super underrated that I think has one of the most underrated records of, of the late nineties. And the other is the album that I ultimately chose, which I will let you introduce if you like. Yes, which is Chokehold's Content Without Dying, which came out in 1995 at the time. And and I want a little bit of your insight to this because you kind of set me up perfectly where you talked about how the first time you heard hardcore music, it's 1991, 1992-ish. So, you know, we can say more so based off of the documentary with this title than anything. Like, 1991 is the year punk broke. And then... If you look at the lineage of music as it matters, like you've got this real strong tight-knit alternative scene that blows up. Uh, you have really commercialized alternative music in the in the mid-90s. And then the music that seems to have lasted some sort of period of time is, again, that early 90s alternative stuff. And then the late 90s emo stuff, your cap and jazz, American football, that sort of deal. And for whatever reason, it seems like, at least in my mind, there is a real knowledge gap in the mid-90s hardcore scene. That just that stuff hasn't transferred over into a ton of books, articles, pitchforks, certainly isn't doing Sunday reviews on a chokehold album, and I don't anticipate them doing that anytime soon. So what does the scene look like? Because I know, like, Earth Crisis put out Firestorm in 1993, and Earth Crisis were a militant, straight-edge, vegan band, very similar to Chokehold. And was that uh, still, like, holding force over the scene in a way? What are these shows looking like that you're going to? That's a, that's an excellent question, Case. I'm actually very glad you asked that because I don't think people understand the delineations within sort of even the concept of political straight-edge hardcore. Because uh, certainly both Earth Crisis and Chokehold would qualify without, I mean, I don't think that's the debate. No, I, I will say the, now, this Chokehold album, and, you know, I've listened to Earth Crisis. I've heard every song Rage Against the Machine has put out. I've heard every song Minor Threat has put out. This Chokehold album is as politically charged of a record as I've ever heard. It stunned me listening to it for the first time. It It, it is probably the most viscerally political album of the era, I think. Uh, everything about it is political. Um, you know, first of all, there's samples between basically every song yeah. that uh, like, which I think, I think they were one of the first bands to fully utilize the idea of this. At a, at, a, at a certain point in hardcore, especially that got really played out by the end of the nineties. That was just like, Oh, come on. Like every band, like, but at the time, the idea of doing that and the way they utilize it in the album, it was really incredible because, you know, you'll hear like the end of the O.J. Simpson trial end of the O.J. like on repeat. And then when the music comes in, it just hits you in the guts a thousand times harder than it would if it had just, you know, if the song had just started in the immediate. It, in a way, it's not dissimilar from the beginning to the Gorilla Biscuits Start Today album where you have the horn starting and then New Direction hits, right? It's kind of a similar sort of thing where like you hear one thing that doesn't seem to fit. But you realize at some point you sort of 
realize it's a prelude to something more aggressive and intense that like, and, and I, it's, it's hard to fully explain unless you're listening to it, but it, it is really incredible. I will say there was a huge difference between, um, the sort of, uh, straight edge politics that our political edge or what, whatever term you want to use that a lot of the, the earth crisis fans had versus what you would see out of like people that were more into chokehold, you know, um, earth crisis was hardline straight edge adjacent. I don't know if they would have ever really called themselves that, but there was like, uh, there, there were certainly adjacent to that scene. Um, and, and I think there was more of a sort of like, more, certainly at least an implied um, macho masculinity sort of uh, edge to what they were trying to do. Um, that's not to say that they weren't legitimately sincere about their politics, but I, I they definitely were catering more to that crowd. Whereas Chokehold, I think, almost by design, the politics came first. The and and for, to be honest, for some people they may not like that. I completely understand that, and I actually think a lot of the stuff on the album is kind of dated in the sense of if you listen to it now, you think, well, that's not really that radical, right? Like it, because the culture has shifted as much as it has. But you got to understand, at the time in the early to mid '90s, the the moralizers, the the authority figures, the people that were um, trying to control your life, the people that were trying to dictate what societal norms were, were almost exclusively people that were sort of like um, religious right and or like mainstream like corporate Republican types. You th- that was where the the sort of uh, political power that was so alienating to people was coming from. And the Chokehold album is really a response to that. The culture has changed in a lot of ways. I, I think the, 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 the sort of pernicious effects of various other aspects of culture are now spread, spread out a lot more. So it's, not, it's no longer that one central thing that people were rebelling against like it was then. But the album is very much rejection of that. And I think you saw that in the shows. I mean, I saw Chokehold live at the Lads and Homemakers Club on tour for this album. And it was absolutely insane. I, I actually looked for footage of it to see if it was online case. I don't think there's any. I do think I've got video footage somewhere. If I can dig it up, I'll put it online and uh, you can link to it or whatever. Yeah, that'd you be want great. Yeah. yeah. Well, let's let's take a look at the first track on the album, Underneath. I think from the start, like, I kind of categorize most hardcore bands into hardcore bands that take a little bit more from the emo genre and hardcore bands that take a little bit uh, from the metal genre. And I tend to find a little bit more, I guess, comfort in these emo-adjacent bands, which I think is especially prevalent now in the post-hardcore scene, where you've got, like, your Touche Amores and your Law Disputes underneath and chokehold there's much more of a metal vibe and a masculine vibe. Now, not necessarily like a metal up your ass, ignorant sort of deal, but it's just a very aggressive and muscular sounding record from the first note. And it continues for the next eight tracks. I think that is entirely fair (laughs) to say it is like, there's nothing like it's weird because at the time there was, you know, I I think that point it, it, there definitely 
was and I think still is kind of a delineation between the bands and the hardcore scene that were more influenced by metal or like metal adjacent things and the bands that like were sort of you know like you could always tell if a if like a band had like guitar players that listened to metal bands or like if if a band had a guitar players that listened to like rights of spring or yes exactly (laughs) like like there's there 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 is clearly a difference and what was weird is i tend to be a person who likes both (laughs) but most people i know tend to like one or the other more I'm not like that. I, I, but, but I will say, I, and I will say this right out of the gate. And I know, and I know we, there's a shtick you do here where we rate the albums at the end and that's fine. We can do that then. I'm not going to spoil that aspect of this, but I will say right out of the gate that, um, I think this is probably the best hardcore record of all time. Really? And what, I, what, yes. And, and, and I'm going to, and the, the, the reason I think that is that the way, like, so, the way the album is composed is the intensity never lets off, but the samples are used to as breaks, right? So there's always every single thing, every song kind of has its own theme and every single sample is like acts as a break so that you can get that sort of calm down and then you immediately come back up. I think hardcore is meant to be experienced live. And I think it's very, very difficult to translate that to an album. This is one of the only hardcore albums that I think was ever recorded that I think effectively translates what the band was like live. And for for that reason, I think this is probably the best hardcore album ever recorded. And I say that, and, and one other quick note I would make is, if you hear the recording quality of this, it's not good. And I think, but I actually think it is good for what the album is intended to be. If this was a slick album, if this was produced in a slick way, I think it would suck. Yeah, I think it, would, it, it would just be jarring. It, it wouldn't make any sense. It has to be produced this way. It has to. You, you, you ha- it has to sound like it was recorded in like a Folgers crystal can or something. You can, it, this cannot be, this album cannot be produced in like Kurt Below's, Below's studio. It can't be like, like, that, like that came later. Like you needed to have this first so you could even get to that, if that makes sense. Yeah. So Dylan mentions the samples that are really uh, on almost every track on the album, if not every track, I think, you know, most songs begin with them, some songs end with them, but they're all samples from old Young Republicans youth choir records. And it's, you know, uh, the right to bear arms and very pro-life messages and just all of this sort of stuff that uh, puts you in a weird quasi dimension where you're not entirely sure especially like the first time I put the record on it's like hmm I because it's funny that you say that samples were overplayed uh in hardcore because I heard this I was like oh a sample in a hardcore record that's that's novel like I haven't heard a ton of that so every song seems to kick off with that and then as Dylan mentioned it's just this unrelenting explosion of rage and angst and these very intense political messages that again might seem not as extreme to the modern eye, but given the context of, you know, this album came out May 23rd, 1995, it makes sense that these are really radical messages. And to your point on this album capturing some sort of live experience, like I listened to this album six or seven times all the way through because I was really enjoying it. Um, But I had it on right before we started recording and I didn't have my headphones on. I was just listening to the album on my computer and kind of letting it fill 
the space in my room a little bit. It was more of a, a full body, I don't want to say like listening experience, like I'm tripping out or anything, because I am straight edge as well. I was not tripping at any time during listening to this album. <laughs> um, but something about opening up the sound a little bit and just letting it fill a room, it was the most enjoyable listening experience I had had listening to this rather than what I, how I typically consume music, which is, you know, headphones on, world off to an extent where I'm really focused on the music. I just kind of, I, I don't want to say I relegated this to background music, but I just had it on as I was doing other stuff and I would just perk my head up and be like, man, fuck, this sounds really good right now. Like there's an undeniable groove to a lot of these songs that is just, uh, it's really, really intriguing to me. Yes. And I think the musicianship on the album is actually kind of underrated. Um, and I also think it's an album where uh, the way the vocals are done is very, what's the word? It, I think that probably replicates the live experience almost more than anything else, because not only is it the rawness that you would expect from a 90s hardcore album, but the way like the dubbed gang vocal moments are done <laughs> Like some of it isn't totally in sync, but it's done in a way where like that is what you would expect if you were at a show. Yeah, no, right. It makes like, sense. like, like that is exactly what you would expect if you were at a show. You would like, and I don't think as good as there's been a there've been a lot of good hardcore records in the '90s. I don't think anything quite like this exists. Anyway, we can we can keep going. So Afraid of Life is track two. Uh, it's a song that kind of deals with this idea of, you know, uh, all you need is a diction at your own fingertips, see what they turn you into. There's a lot of stuff in this album that feels very, like, open your third eye, which I, I don't know if it ages super well. Like, I, there are a few lines of this album that just jumped out to me as being, being a little goofy, but there's a certain level of disconnect that I think hardcore musicians have then, and I don't know if you'll agree with this or not, but I feel like there's a large middle portion of a Venn diagram of like hardcore fans and country music fans of like Towns Van Zant style of country, where there's such a disconnect and almost contempt for the modern world and everything around you. I think hardcore dives into the face of that a little bit more, while maybe there's some retreating done in country music. But that was the first thing that jumped out to me listening to this. No, I think that's a great that, that's a great point. Um, so you know, probably my favorite band of all time is actually Lucero, and I think they sort of kind of like one of the reasons I like them a lot is because they sort of cross those two ecosystems, right? So you they come from a punk rock background uh, and even from a hardcore background, and but they they have a this sort of you know. Uh, that kind of country music, the sort of Towns Van Zant singer songwriter inspired country music. Some people would use the term Americana. I think it's kind of bastardized, but <laughs> like that, that they cut, like they sort of fuse those two elements together. And I think Ch Chocol, like this, so there are, there's almost a, I don't know quite what the term I would use is. So in, in the nineties, in, in the hardcore scene during this period, you had a, a variety of different sort of political movements like this, the, the Hare Krishnas were still sort of around. Right. And you, you also, obviously you had the vegan straight edge scene 
but there that even that was sort of split in a couple of different ways. And, and you know, it's like you had all these sort of different like the and some of these groups went on to be more explicitly political later. They ended up doing things like forming, um, a, frankly, a lot of the background of what would become the Black Bloc anarchist movement. And, you know, today, a, a lot of people who would be like Antifa or whatever, like like th- they sort of came out of this network of this sort of 90s scene network. And um, Chokehold, this particular song, it's sort of Luddite adjacent, right? Like, it's not necessarily saying technology is evil, it's terrible, it's bad. Like, but it, 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 it takes a sort of cynical approach to the idea that, you know, um, you are really learning anything when you're engaging with a sort of uh, uh, techno media landscape. And I actually don't think that age is very poorly at all. No, no, I, not, not at all. <laughs> I, think, I, I think if anything, the message of this song probably is one of the more lasting ones on the entire album. Uh, and it's, very, it's a very, very, very good song. There's no, there's no, I'll, just full disclosure, I don't think there's a song on here I dislike. There's some songs on here that, like, there's some lines that are pretty funny in hindsight. <laughs> but but uh, and I'll, I'll, I'll certainly reference them as we come to them. But this one, I think, actually ages very, very well. So what's the the viewpoint of someone, I guess, in your life or maybe even someone just adjacent to you that maybe doesn't know you super well, but what what are their thoughts on hardcore music if they know it exists at this time? Because I've never, like, this is not something that people make fun of me for. I think just because most people don't know what it is, but, like, I know just through YouTube, you know, Geraldo was exposing straight-edge people as, you know, being in <laughs> gangs at one point and all this yeah, other stuff. It yeah. seems like there was a heavy negative stigma against uh, this scene at the time. So it came in waves, right? Like, there were – so tr- – where I was in Charleston was kind of a fascinating situation because, you know, around the time this album came out, it was, you were still sort of a weirdo and an outcast in school if you were listening to stuff like this. Okay. But if you fast forward about two years, let's say we go to, you know, the, 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 well, let's say the, let's say the fall of 97. All right. It's a little bit over two years, I guess, from when this record came out by that point, somehow, for reasons that I've never been fully unable uh, able to understand, hardcore punk kind of became cool. Really? And yes. Now, not not so cool that like you know uh, it was like the hippest thing you you could do in the world. I'm dating myself with this murder, <laughs> by the way. But 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 cool in the sense of like um, the people you know you're you're sort of stereotypical like jocks and or like uh, prom queen types would like show up at a skate park for a show or something. And all, all of a sudden people who didn't have the time of day for you, uh, for you, like three weeks before one of your friends, it's a very strange phenomenon. I don't really understand what happened there. But then by the time I hit graduation, I graduated in the early summer of 99. It, had sort of become uncool again. And I think there were sort of twists and turns along the way. I think at, there definitely was a big media push at different points to portray uh, st- the idea of straight edge as a gang, which is just absurd. And then there was sort of a, uh, some slightly more credible pushes, frankly, <laughs> to identify a certain crews, so to speak, youth crews, crews, whatever you want to call them, 
um, uh, usually, usually defined by, you know, a bunch of kids who wore the same hoodies in the same scene. <laughs> uh, I mean, well, let's be, I mean, I'm not, I, I, I mean, being honest with you, I was in one. Yes. Okay. But like th- to define those as gangs and there, I think were varying degrees of truth to that. Um, I, you know, I mean, were these groups engaged in actual criminal activity on a broad scale? Not really. But were they, you know, I mean, were there some that were crossing the line in certain ways? Sure. Were there some that were engaging in antisocial and destructive behavior in a way that was not good and probably wasn't a good idea, period? Sure. Was I involved in some of that? Honestly, yes. (laughs) But 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 I mean, I was never somebody that was going to beat somebody up because they weren't straight edge. In fact, I, I was. I, I, to be honest with you, I was the least militant straight edge person I knew, which I believe is one of the reasons why I'm still straight edge now and all those other people aren't. And I joke with them about them to this day. <laughs> Long time friends of mine. We are completely on the same page there. There's there's two tracks later where I really want to dive into straight edge a little bit. Uh, the title track, Content With Dying, is track three. My favorite song on the album. I think it is just a good encapsulation of the sound of this music, of the messages of this music. It is, at least from my knowledge on the scene, this is like what I think of when I think of 90s hardcore. That is almost exactly how I would describe it. Um, I think uh, I think the, the build-up to the you're not free, you never were sing-along part is probably the best of its type ever done in hardcore ever uh like it just if it's it's one of those like very simple sort of pithy anthemy lines that kind of even sounds cheeseball out of context but if you're listening to it you cannot help but get hype listening to no that's it. exactly <laughs> it. If, if you can find a way to encapsulate yourself and the sounds around you and if you can strip away any uh, maybe goofy machismo that surrounds this album or just this like like, this band, I think it's fair to say, like, takes themselves and their message really seriously, but that's not necessarily a bad thing. And if you can find yourself on that same wavelength as them, it's a really powerful listening experience. And I think we're obviously living in very turbulent times right now. Uh, there's a lot of things that, on both a federal level and a state level, that the government is failing on right now, and... I don't, you know, necessarily co-sign any anarchy in the streets, but if there's some sort of artistic outlet you can channel these feelings into, I'm all for it. And I think that is the value of listening to an album like this, you know, that came out 25 years ago. It's unfortunate that so many of these messages are still messages are still relevant today, but they are, and it's really nice to be able to channel my feelings of confusion or anger or disgust into a song like this. I I completely agree with all that. I think it I think it's another one that's very timely and I think it it holds up uh very very well. And I would probably agree with you that it's the best song on the album actually. I I there are other songs that I like a lot. Um there's one that will come up very soon that that I might like as much or more. But it 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 is it, it's a great 
great song. Content with that. Like if you, I'll put it this way: if you were listening, if like if you were listening to one song on the album, this would be the one I would pick. Even if I'm not 100 sure that's my favorite, I think it's the one that I think more more people would resonate with. If that makes sense. No, I think that makes total sense. And then from there, you transition into not a solution. Which is a song that you know has the lines "You call yourself pro-life, I call you pro-murder." Your small mind thinking is not a solution. It's one of those things that, and you would have a better frame of reference for this than I do. But for putting myself in the idea of what 1995 was, sorry to age you, but I was not alive when this record came out. But <laughs> thinking about what I know about 1995, this seems like a completely radical song in a really intense and extreme viewpoint to have, especially you know the the idea of this is one thing but to say it as such really puts it over the top yeah and i think there's also a couple other things to keep in mind that are relevant to the broader distinctions in the scene we talked about you know the hardline straight edge community which was kind of a big deal at that time and was i think i mentioned them in the context of earth crisis but i think probably to a degree they were unfairly associated with earth crisis although there was a sort of infamous line on the earth crisis all-out war ep where they refer to defending the, quote, fetus, which was hugely controversial at the time, okay? Uh, I mean, this was like months and months of fights, literally fist fights at shows over this kind of stuff. <laughs> like, so um, the, the, there was a clear sort of distinction between people who were um, straight edge that were political, that were um, pushing... Uh, and I think you'll see this on the next song, too. I think uh, I, I guess here's what I would say. This song is as much a response to interscene dynamics as it is to the actual outer world. Now, it is a critique of the outer world and a relevant critique to the outer world, because you got, you got to understand that this this time was also a period where you had um, sort of the peak of the uh, phenomenon of attacks on abortion doctors and, and abortion providers, rather, and things of that nature. So it is a direct response to that. But it's also a response to this sort of growing movement within the punk rock and hardcore sphere of people who were uh, not just pro-life in the sense of, well, you know, I, I personally don't agree with it, like, which, I mean, that's, I think, an argument that you can have, um, but people who were sort of militantly, politically active as pro-life people. And um, this was chokehold without, like, actually literally gatekeeping and saying, no, absolutely not in our scene, um, although they may have been doing some of that too, it's more saying it's more of them saying, "I think you people are fucking stupid," <laughs> right? And they, like in a very, very, very aggressive way. So uh, that's one thing that's really important to think of when you like the context. I think both of the world and the uh, the scene itself is very, very relevant to this entire album, particularly with this song, and I believe with the next song as well. So let me ask you this before we hit the next song. Like, I, I don't think I, one, asked how you stumbled upon this album. So I want to know that, but then also a line, you know, about protecting the fetus or, or whatever controversy was stirred in the scene. How is that information 
being put out there? Is it still a, a scene that has relied on zines at this point? Like how, how is information uh, being spread? That's a great question. I'm actually really glad you asked this because this kind of stuff, um, it's very, very difficult for people your age and even a little bit older than you, frankly, case to understand how this worked at the time. Right. So, um, first of all, you got to understand you had things like fact sheet five, which was like the zine that sort of told you what stuff mattered and how to get a hold of people. Right. But what the, every, there, it was, this was really like, you know, if you, if you've ever read like Henry Rollins talking about like black, I forget the name of that book, but like, if you've ever read, like read or listened to Henry Rollins talk about, you know, how black flag used to tour and like how that sort of infrastructure was set up. Or if you've ever read our band could be your life. Yes, which is a, great, a recommended great read if you have not. Yeah. Like if you, so if you're like, you know, sort of what was going on there. What's interesting is I came into this world right around in between two points. Right. So the infrastructure had been set up because those bands had set it up prior to them. It didn't exist at all. Right. They had set up the infrastructure, but there were none of the sort of modern tools during this period. There really were not. cell unless you were like the richest man in the world or the president, you didn't have a cell phone. <laughs> right. <laughs> and nobody, you know, uh, internet didn't exist really. I mean, it, like internet really, I mean, I had internet very, very early cause my dad was a school teacher and even I didn't have it until like 96. Like, you, you know what I mean? Like, th- and nobody was really, and even then you weren't booking bands off the internet. You were booking bands because you heard about it from person X from person Y. So the, the, distros were a huge thing right and distros were you know usually run by somebody some big sort of scenester type who would get uh, content from all over the place uh and usually it was just albums but it could uh, records but it could but it could also be zines it could also be uh patches it could be whatever and uh record stores were huge then like you learned about like so many con- like record stores were, were meeting spaces where you would talk about not just what records were coming out, but also the controversy in whatever scene that record store catered to. So we had a great, we had two great record stores in Charleston. We had Manifest uh, Disc and Tapes, which was a small chain, um, but it was a small chain exclusive to South Carolina. And we also had 52.5 Records, uh, RIP 52.5, my favorite record store of all time. Uh, and uh, they they very much catered to sort of the, the scene politics and whatnot uh, to a degree later on. But that sort there was there was sort of a you had so you had interpersonal networks where you just frankly hearsay you heard from somebody who heard from somebody who heard from somebody and you re, you played relay on the phone or when you saw them at shows you had zines you had distros which were a huge way you learned about bands and you learned about controversy sometimes from liner notes sometimes you'd read you'd be reading liner notes for an album because that's how you learned about bands by that yeah, case yeah, yeah. i mean you you read the thanks section and then you go all right these guys think these five bands i gotta try them because there was no other way. Yeah. So you 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 would you would go do that, and then maybe sometimes in the in the liner notes somebody would shit on another, <laughs> and you'd go, oh, I wonder what that's about, and then you go ask somebody, and then that. So there, it was real weird. Like like um, sometimes it would be literally like an like a a small thing in a zine would raise a question, which would lead to gossip, and then this completely exploded when 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 AOL came around. It was a game changer for all this because you had things like. AOL Hardcore and Punk Chat, which just became like a breeding ground for the worst sort of gossip imaginable, you know. But this this entire era is is a very very strange era because you the it was kind of in between the sort of modern landscape of you know telecommunications and whatnot 
and the what now feels like pre-modern landscape. We were I was in between those two periods, uh, and I saw the change firsthand. And I, I also saw the way certain things ha- like certain other aspects of the change firsthand. Like I'll give you a very quick example. I know this is going to be long, but you invited no, Dylan on your show. I, what did is, you expect, Dylan? I, I'm so <laughs> fascinated by what you're saying right now. So so, so the the like one one thing you would you would see is um in those days you would book bands blind so what would happen lots of times is you would end up with shows where there would be like an indie rock band a ska band and two like beat down hardcore bands and then like an emo core band would be on last because you may have not heard them at all or you may have heard like two songs on a demo that sounded totally different from what you saw in person or like you know what i mean or like somebody just hopped in the van and was touring with this other band and they didn't even bother to tell you like there there was any litany of these things could happen and virtually nobody recorded before they played out back then you would play out first right so you you play out you 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 know nobody was really making any money but you'd, you'd save money in the interim somehow and you'd go record at whatever recording studio would have you uh in south carolina it was the jam room jay matheson he's the man still there to my knowledge he's awesome but you know that's what you would do that that was the process it, it nowadays and really this change with the advent of Pro Tools and digital media in general, it's totally flipped on its head. You record before you do anything. Yeah. And then you, t- and then you take that recording and you shop it around and, and venues or bookers or whoever will, I mean, I remember when you were, you could book relatively big bands in the scene and you weren't dealing with a booking agent or anybody at all. I mean, you just talk to them directly. You know, you'd send like a text message to like Jacob Bannon or something on a, a-, a- like, like this, this was a, totally different universe i like we i I remember booking our our helping book the get up kids mineral tour off uh like uh, they played with two hardcore bands at a skate park okay that sounds incredible and uh i've got footage of that somewhere too and the and this was off of the woodson ep this wasn't even for four minute mile yet to get up kids out and and they I don't think it was for four minute mile. Don't quote me on that. I could be wrong about that, but I, I don't think it was. Or it maybe maybe it was for that tour, but the album hadn't come out yet. That was yeah. another thing you saw a lot back then is bands would go on tour before the album had dropped. That's insane for. to me. Yeah. Oh, it happened all the time. And uh, or they or they would get like the album shipped to them halfway through the tour. That happened a lot too. <laughs> but but I mean many times. But so you had this sort of this thing going on. But like I remember for when when the Get Up Kids and Mineral were brought in. Uh, you know, and I love both those bands, uh, but they had no, you know, they, there was no agent that they were booked through that. It was just like me and some other guy, like emailed some dude on, on AOL, you know, like this is, that's how I might not even been AOL, AOL actually. I can't even remember. Like this is how things were done for a long, long time. Uh, in fact, I remember the very first time a band ever asked for a guarantee, what that I that I dealt with. I know I can tell you exactly what band it was. And it shocks me to this day because it's kind of a trivial band in the grand scheme of things. No offense to the guys. It was the band Embodiment who were on solid state. This was kind of when the Christian hardcore thing was at its peak, when Zayo sort of really took it to the absolute next level. And uh, actually, you can see one of the first uh, uh, Zayo live performances from the Where Blood and Fire Bring Rest tour, which really is the album that changed that scene forever and, and, and is a great album in my estimation. That, that, that was in Charleston. That is on YouTube. But, uh, you know, Embodiment, I remember they asked for a guarantee and we were just like, what? 
<laughs> like, is this, is this an actual thing that's happening right now? So, I mean, like, I like it, it, thinking about how much things changed in that. And, and that was a very quick change because, like, you Choco was at their absolute peak, like 95, 96, probably. Right. Uh, and they were they were kind of a really big, yeah, really, really big band, super influential band um, during that period. And then, like, the next wave happened and I don't think they were, they weren't totally forgotten about in certain places. They were still really well known, but it was quick how it was, it was kind of interesting how fast the zeitgeist changed and how fast the norms changed. And one of those norms became things like booking agents. So, uh, it very, very quickly went from being a sort of DIY space, which chokehold was very much about to being a more business friendly space. So there's a million things we could unpack there and, and I'll get, I'll, I'll hit a few quick points just to, I guess, give you, Dylan, the frame of reference of someone that's 21 now and tries to be pretty active in the Chicago scene. I could always, like, I, and this is all obviously pre-COVID, but, like, I had made a goal to myself this year. Like, I wanted to go see more hardcore shows from bands that weren't necessarily considered touring bands. Like, I want to really immerse myself in that scene. Um, the idea of going or I guess booking a band and not hearing them, that seems completely insane. But like I go to, you know, I, when things are normal, you know, I go to a record store, you know, probably once a week, if not once every other week, I've never before bought a record without hearing the band. Like I've taken pictures of records in stores and said, that cover looks interesting, but let me go home and listen to that. And then I'll come back and decide whether or not I like it. Like that is just mind blowing to me. And then there was, you know, one point you made of, bands that were playing shows before they'd recorded their albums and that is i mean i know there are hardcore bands right now that say you know you have to record have music to sell at your first show like that ideology has completely changed i just recently saw an opener in chicago the furthest thing from hardcore there's an alt country artist named casey oates who i saw open a few months ago and i i was not familiar with her going into that show and then she played and i was mind blown like oh my god this is the best stuff i've ever heard let me go you know either buy her album or stream all of her stuff and she doesn't have anything streaming right now and it's like this like i have never <laughs> experienced this before of it's crazy of wanting to hear something and not really being able to like i guess it's you know an instant gratification thing it's a gen z thing whatever but it was like i can't believe it that you know she played I think eight songs and I really liked all of them. And I was fully on board with this new artist. And then I go uh, to the merch table and she's got these shirts, but she doesn't have any music. And then I go on Spotify and she doesn't have anything there. It's like, Oh my God, like what are you doing? Like we're living in a time where people, whether it's right or wrong are going to want more. And there's always a need for consumption. And I was like left out in the cold on this one. And it didn't bother me, but it was just shocking to experience. Oh, well, and here's the thing. Some of my favorite bands from this era, never recorded anything right are they never they like like uh you know which sounds totally insane to say but there was like a there was a band in charleston called voice that was incredible i don't they may have done a demo you know like like i like i you know and and some of them did record things but they never really got formal releases including some of my bands frankly in fact there's a lucero lyric in the song summer song which i think very well encapsulates this where it's something like the the band sure is good but they probably won't last through the fall that was kind of a, a, a that was like a reality in the hardcore punk scene for a lot of the 90s you'd get bands that would be like incredible and and sometimes they would play in front of huge crowds and have big fan bases and they'd play you know 
five times and that would be done. I mean, my, my, my handle on Twitter, Dylan Waco comes from a band I was in called remnants of Waco. That was super popular relative to the Carolina hardcore scene for, you know, a six month period in nine. I don't remember what year it was. And, um, you know, we played maybe six shows total and I still get asked about that band to this day, <laughs> like it, because we were like super fun live. I mean, I'll state my own bias. I think we were a very good live band and, and we never recorded anything ever. There's no, there's no, unless you saw us live or unless you have video of a live recording or sound of a live, you never saw that band. So like it, it, and there was a ton of stuff like that and that just doesn't exist anymore. You know, everybody has got some track record and there are pros and cons to that. I think there, there are. I think, um, you know, I will say there, I don't think there's anything quite as exhilarating in the modern world to me personally, of course, stating my own bias here as taking the risk, taking the leap of faith on a band and it paying off <laughs> for like you buy it, you, you t- get a seven inch and you're like, now the flip of that can happen too. Boy, that sucks. But you know, when you take that leap of faith and you realize almost immediately, oh, this is really good. Like, I, I there's nothing like that, man. There's nothing like it. Luckily for us, Chokehold did record music, and they recorded the song Religion on a Stick, which is next up. How can you A fascinating song. I feel like my relationship with this song is it, it felt personal to me just in the sense that uh, I think it's fair to say, unless I really misinterpreted it, it's an anti-organized religion song, which like I don't know. I feel like that was probably a more prevalent thing at the time. But like the current like fleet of hardcore bands that I listen to, like it's just not a subject that would ever come up. But I just found it interesting that like. I look at religion in a very similar light that I do uh, straight edge where, you know, being straight edge for me, it's not, it's not really a big deal. Like it doesn't dominate my life in any sort of real facet. I am sitting here wearing a half heart Boston straight edge shirt, but that's just because half heart kicks ass. Um, But like, I would never, you know, smash a beer out of somebody's hands. I would tell people to stop smoking cigarettes, but that's just because I don't want them to die. Like, you know, weed is very prevalent uh, in my world of uh, the Chicago comedy scene, but also just in general, there's an acceptance of this now. And like, I don't, as long as you're not hurting yourself or hurting others, I don't really mind it. I have always looked at religion the same way as it's a very personal endeavor for a lot of people. And as long as you're not actively harming uh, yourself in a way where you're, ignoring uh, your safety or just this blind trust. And as long as you're not harming others, you're free to do kind of whatever you want. I pretty much agree with all that. Um, I, 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 so this would be the other song that would be in contention for my favorite on the album. It's really strong. It's a really good song. And and it, the thing about it is like the trail out at the end where he's just sort of almost babbling. It's like almost like the end of a rap battle track, <laughs> where, you know, like, we're, and, and uh, the, the fuck your God at the end of it. Yeah. It's kind of cheesy and ham fisted and everything by today's standards. But again, in the context of what going on, was going on at the time, like I talked about the Christian right had a lot of power still at that moment in time. 
And um, so in part, the song was a response to that. There's also a slightly more calculated aspect of this song where this song is about it's I think it's less about religion and more about evangelizing and utilizing um, religion as a weapon of control. Yes, right. Which is where where I would step in and go, that's, you know, that's wrong to me. And, And the more we see even in today's world of religion influencing these greater political decisions seems as someone that is I like I've seen the positives that organized religion can do for people I'm, I'm an advocate of it if it's your thing but seeing the way it negatively impacts people's lives and it's you know creeped into government in such a way it's very worrisome to me and, and this was also a period of you know the Sally Struthers telethon and like things like that like where you have these uh, uh you know and you have these sort of organizations that were sort of overtly trying to downplay things you, you and you'd hear these horror stories later of like people who literally would basically go over to like some poor country in the third world or the global south i think is the preferred term now but like and you know go to like you know like well we're here to feed people or whatever and then you'd find out it's like oh uh did you did you say your bible verses if not uh, hit the bricks you know like that 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 kind of stuff that was sort of a, a major concern the other big thing is like the previous song, this was a response to the sort of Christian hardcore scene becoming a thing. Which and, is a world, real quick, that I know nothing about. I had recently said in one of my classes, I don't remember how it came up, but I had mentioned offhandedly that I that I am straight edge, uh, which is something that I never really say publicly. Like, I think there are people, like, because I'll just go, oh, I, don't, I don't drink, whatever. But the words, I am straight edge, coming out of my mouth, very uncommon, because I do feel like that is a way to get your ass kicked, because it never sounds cool. Um, but my teacher came up to me after class, and she was like, oh, like, are you are you into the Christian hardcore scene at all? And I looked at her, I was like, what? No, I don't I don't even know what those <laughs> bands are. I didn't know that was a thing. Yeah, it was a, it was a huge thing in uh, particularly the mid to late 90s. And even within Christian hardcore, you know, there were some big variants. You had Zayo, which I think ultimately ended up being not a Christian band, but like they were probably the, the absolute peak of it, you know, 98, 99, that era. But like you had bands like Overcome, you had bands like Strongarm, who I actually like a lot and was a precursor to Shai Hulu, who I think is one of the best hardcore bands of all time. Um, so like you, there's, there was a, there, I mean, it was a big thing during this period. And there was definitely a feeling that this, the power in this, like so much of what we're rebelling against, so much of what hardcore is a visceral response to, is this idea of people who think they're pious and they're moralizers and they're holier than thou, and on top of it, often they're bad people. Those people trying to tell us what to do, how to live our lives, like what the like, the idea that those people are variants of them would then come into that space. And try to take that over was hugely controversial. I mean, it was hugely controversial. I mean, like, like there, I cannot tell you the number of arguments I was around, privy to, a part of at the time that had some relationship to uh, whether or not uh, Christian hardcore was an oxymoron. <laughs> like, like, I mean, that that was a huge, huge issue from probably around I don't know, maybe '94, late '94 through to probably 98. I actually think it sort of changed when Zayo got big because I think Zayo, the way they, the things they talked about and the way their songs were written and whatnot, it, you know, it was more, 
it didn't have like the over proselytization quality to it that some of these other bands did. And I think it, because it felt more like, um, the sort of stereotypical personal relationship type stuff, you know, that, that, uh, modern day evangelicals all say, <laughs> I, I think be, be, because it felt like it was more in that direction, it became more acceptable. But at the time of this chokehold song, that was not the case at the time of the chokehold song, the Christian hardcore bands that were around were much, much more like this is a tool for conversion rather than this is an expression. This is us expressing our beliefs through music. And we're also going to talk about some other stuff. no, that was not what was going on when religion on a stick dropped. So, keeping in the topic of people maybe being, you know, holier than holy, having some sort of pretentiousness to them or some sort of savior complex, we move on to the next track, Regression. Maybe this is wrong to say, and I battle this self-ideology a lot of, I am very online to an extent, you know, I, I, my life is often consumed by my Twitter feed, which is unhealthy, but it's just how it is, and there, I will read tweets of stuff that I ideologically agree with, these progressive messages that I know are right and correct and I would like to see put into practice, but for whatever reason, that medium... I have a complete disconnect with not wanting to seem progressive on that medium, but it's just the, I I just always feel like there's a performative nature to being progressive to an extent. And, and in the song regression, you know, they say, you know, your country is sick when you get more for robbery than you do for rape. And it's this very politically charged, like the rest of the songs, but it's this in your face message. And it's a, a call to change that I found to be very powerful and I don't know what it is there's it's probably wrong that I need some sort of muscle and some sort of masculine charge to get me to rally behind these progressive ideas but all I could think of when I was listening to this song was like yes like this is a movement I can get behind whereas if the same thing is done uh in a twitter thread with somebody that has a rose emoji next to their twitter name (laughs) I'm going to roll my eyes and just get annoyed for 15 seconds. And I don't know why that is. I don't know if you have any sort of similar experience with this song, but that's, you know, the way I look at regression. I am very sympathetic to that. I think in a lot of ways, I mean, I, I, I would say this, um, to me, like the, the most important lyrics in this, in this song are, and again, these these will sound like cliches out of context, and they kind of are cliches even in context. But just because something's a cliche doesn't mean it's wrong. In fact, it often means it's right. That's why it's a cliche. But uh, just the simple, they don't give a fuck about you, yeah. <laughs> okay? <laughs> and also, these laws are not for people. They only benefit the state. That is huge for me because a, just laying my cards on the table, I am an, an open, explicit anarchist and have been basically since I was eleven or twelve years. You were old. the first person and, in my life I had ever heard describe themselves as that. You were probably and, having a conversation with me when I was seventeen, and you dropped it on me. I was like, holy <laughs> shit, I need to Google something. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, I I think that is to me that's the difference between a lot of people in the sort of modern paradigm where it does feel like it's like almost about like trying to make sure their social score is appropriate right like <laughs> it is do like there's not 
I feel like oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes there's not an understanding that at the bottom line, these laws aren't for people. They, they, they are written to benefit the state. That is a, to me, that is a correct observation. Okay. And some people might disagree with that. And some people might say, okay, well, that's true. But then we just get people in there who write good laws. Uh, now, now that's a separate podcast, and I can explain why I think that's highly unlikely. <laughs> that's to that's a different show. You're going to want to talk to Aaron Bentley or somebody about I, that. I, it's a totally I, different now, show. Now, now, look, I certainly understand the impulse to want to believe that, right? I like, I like, I, I think that's a completely natural, like, desire. I, I don't think it's possible, but I, but I, or at least I see very little evidence that it's possible. But, but that single point, I think, makes is such a big thing, like that. Is, is huge to me. It's just that understanding that like in that communication, in that explicit term of, Hey, you know what? Like I get, it's like almost implied, like I get why you might think laws are a good idea if they like controlled certain behaviors that are bad or like if they, you know, if, if they're like, if they're benefiting society, but guess what? These laws we have, that ain't what they're about. <laughs> you know, yeah. that, that like, I, I think the way that is communicated in the song is just super powerful. Well, I think that same sort of message can be put into condition, which is up next, which, you know, is an anti-police track, which it's it's like it almost would have been weird had this album not had an anti-police track. Like it was just the next thing on the bingo card of progressiveness that like, yeah, no, this makes sense. Condition is weird. I feel like the way the vocals are done in this song, like it's a, it's a bit of a harder listen. Like this is probably the one track that like, if I'm not really in the mood for it, this one's probably getting skipped, but it's another one of those really powerful messages. And it just goes to, you know, who are we really protecting and who are we really serving? Because uh, it's unfortunate that this song is as apt now as it was then. It's just wrong that nothing seems to change. And this was a... This was a pretty powerful message at the time. I mean, like you got to understand when this when this came out, this was the sort of height of Clinton era politics in the United States, which is to say that the it's not like there were no left or even for that matter, right wing criticism, crit, critiques of law enforcement, because those certainly do exist. I mean, I think people lots of times don't realize how many libertarians are are frankly better on police abuse than a lot of people who identify on the left are. But I, this, this song to come out during that period, I think main was probably more to not like, you know, this is well before, uh, things like, uh, Michelle Alexander's great book, the new Jim Crow, for example, like this, I mean, you're, you're, this is light years before any of that stuff. And now don't get me wrong. People were experiencing this and people who were paying attention knew about this. Okay. But the reality is the culture was such that Bill, Bill Clinton, who was the representative of the allegedly more liberal party, if you want to use that term, was, uh, you know, running on, you know, basically being a crime hawk. Right. And, and, and you know, trust the police. This was not that long, uh, you know, after the Rodney King riots. Uh, this was this is a that the, it's, it's definitely a, t- a song of the time. I think that's fair to say. I think the I think some of the lyrics on the song are absolutely hilarious, <laughs> and and hilarious not like in a 
oh man, that's funny and incisive, but just like, oh my God. Like there's a, there's a, there's a line in here where uh, he's like, uh, you know, to support you would be like supporting a rapist. And I wouldn't do that as if he needed to clarify that, like just for the record, you know, just in case you're wondering and thinking that I'm advocating rape on this album. I'm not like, let me clear that. Like it's, it's kind of that kind of thing. It's like, like, but I kind of find that charming. I do not, you know, I kind of find it charming that it's like, they're going out of their way. Like that to me sort of speaks to the time period too, in a way. And, and, and what hardcore was about. It's like, we're making this. And I don't know if you're familiar with, uh, are you familiar with the band Left for Dead at all? No, not really. Okay, so Left for Dead is kind of a follow-up band to Chokehold. As then I believe Chris the singer went on to do it. Maybe one of the other guys in the band, and they would do their songs. I think became they were still political, but they would play with the sort of like if you think Chokehold is aggressive. <laughs> I mean, like. Uh, uh, like there's a song about animal abuse on, on a Left 4 Dead album where the, one of the lyrics is, why don't I cut off your head and we'll call it negative reinforcement. If that's how you treat an animal, you deserve even worse. Like these are like, these are you, I think conditioned is sort of like the first step toward that. If that makes sense. Like, like you could, if you see where some of this stuff is going, you can see like, but I could also see how this would be kind of like the weak song on the album. It's not to me, but I could see it. I don't, I don't think that's, that's an, an, you know, out to lunch observation. No, it's, I, you've, I think hit on something there of it's very, maybe self-aware to an extent, but it, there are lines that are very funny. And the one you pointed out is, is one of those, I think, like I have to take the last line of the song, which is that's why it makes me smile, smile when someone kills a pig or two. Like I am an advocate for as, as long as you're on this earth, I'm going to try to keep you there. Like I think life is really precious and I don't uh, advocate killing of any kind, really. Like I, I feel very strongly about that. But if you take that line as metaphorical or just not completely at face value, it continues that string of lines that could be looked at as humorous, which weirdly just because it wouldn't be a podcast if i didn't mention him like morrissey who i don't know how you feel i have an i love him and it's not good i'm aware that that's an awful thing but i am completely obsessed with them but like militant veganism like it's something that i've become comfortable with just through listing through his words and like he is someone that would i think gladly take a dead human over a dead animal and you know although there's so many somber morrissey lyrics and he's looked at as this downer Morrissey's also really funny, and I see, in a weird, twisted way, uh, a similar thing in Chokehold. I, I no, I agree with that actually. I think a, I think I can totally see that connection, and I think the best sort of political stuff like this during this era would have these weird, and sometimes it worked very cheesy, and sometimes it was just like I can't believe they said that. Like another great example I can think of is from the Propagandi album, How to Clean Everything. Like Chokehold, by the way, propaganda Canadian, and both often talking about U.S. politics, and an interesting observation there. But Pro- propaganda has this has this line at uh, I forget the name of the song, but like it's on that album. Like the song closes with them just screaming "fuck the troops to hell." <laughs> and now listen, now listen, okay. Regardless of how you feel about that that sentiment, the idea with with the, like the sort of American religion. Uh, 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 like being what it is and how we view first responders, how we view the troops, all this stuff where even people who are anti-war are very careful to be like, Oh, thank you for your service. A lot of the time, like the idea that you would just say, 
fuck the troops to hell at the end of the song. Like, <laughs> I mean, look, you don't have to like it. You can think they're assholes, you think they're pieces of shit or whatever. But there is something so brazen about that and, and the and the delivery of it. And I think the same thing it permeates throughout this entire chokehold record that it's impossible for me not to be energized by it. And I, I think that would be the case almost regardless of my politics, honestly. I mean, I, like, I, I do. I, I don't. I don't think I would. I have to have my political disposition to see to to be energized by that. It's like there's a ton of dude bros that we all know who think Rage Against the Machine are incredible, and I think like there's a part of the reason why is something similar. Dylan, I'm so glad you mentioned Rage Against the Machine because I had a note on them in this next song, which is sidetracked. The thing that jumped out to me was it feels like, and at this point, you know, Rage is kicking ass. The self-titled album had had come out. Uh, uh, what I can't think of, uh, Evil Empire is you know a year away from from coming out, and Bulls on Parade sort of takes over from there. But this felt like a Rage track. I felt like there was an Inside Out influence to the song. Now, whether or not they were influenced by Inside Inside Out or not, I do not know. But I think. In a weird way, like, Content With Dying, the title track, is probably the best song, or like, yes, like, this is what you should listen to if you want to listen to this style of music. There's something about Sidetracked where I'm certainly not putting it on at a party anytime soon, but it felt weirdly accessible to me. I definitely see that. Look, there is a taste, just a taste. And you see this in a lot of hardcore albums around this time, by the way. The aforementioned uh, Earth Crisis All Out War EP is probably the most egregious example of this. But there is a taste of rapcore in this yeah. album. Yeah. <laughs> okay, there's a taste of it. It's it, it's not downset. We're not that far down the rabbit hole, folks. But there there is absolutely a taste of it. But in a way that is not so cornball where you're like, oh, my God. Like, like it, 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 it's just, it just sort of hovers. And there, there is, um, uh, there, this also has the great, great, great part where like this sort of tempo changes and they come back in and, and he, and he just asks the question. And I think sometimes the best lyrics in hardcore are posed as questions, by the way. I think that's very interesting. No, very much so. Uh, but, but it's, do you trust your government? Do you trust a higher power? And it's very, it's very, very simple because he, He's asking a question, and obviously it's rhetorical, but it kind of isn't rhetorical, right? It like it's kind of like obviously he has his opinion about this, okay? But there is something sort of implicit in there that is that where it's like, okay, yes, I have my opinion, and I don't think you should trust your government or higher power. However, this is a sincere question. And you should be thinking about this and what the implications of this are for your life. It, it, the deliver—I don't know—I I think the delivery of this is very, very, very good. And it also allows what I like about this song in comparison to some of the other songs, which are more explicit and bold. Is I think isolating those questions—you don't have to go full crazy anarchist like Dylan Hales. You could you, there could be certain smaller issues that that makes you think about or certain smaller sort of engagements with life and the world that that makes you think about. And there's a lot of value in that. I think this is like the closest thing to an entryist song on the album. So you're setting me up perfectly because you're the only one as the final track on the album. What is- 
There's a moment where they ask, what's more important, the world's problems or the X on your hand? And more so than anything on this album. And if there's a favorite song of mine that isn't the title track, it's this one. I love this song. But that line in particular, I talked about how Religion on a Stick is uh, very much, I think, you know, I, I, I never like being confrontational with any of my beliefs because they're my things and I'm comfortable with just having them be mine. But I can't get too wrapped up in this idea that just because I don't drink and I don't do drugs and I don't do whatever, like that doesn't make me a good person. I still have to go out and put forth action into this world and I still have to uh, make my time on this earth worthwhile. And You're the Only One was, to me, the most impactful song on the record. It is a bold attack on the sort of, um, at its worst, lifestyle cult of straight edge from a from within the straight edge scene, right? And I, I tend to think that a lot of the better straight edge bands from the era were bands that were doing that. Bands like, it's, it's ironic in a way because Gorilla Biscuits, who we started the show talking about, were in a sense sort of taking, like some of their more famous songs are like almost explicitly taking shots at the previous generation that was basically saying, okay, we had fun, now all those fun things we did aren't allowed because they're too violent or they're too whatever. So don't do them. <laughs> right? yeah. Like, like, and girl, this is like, no, 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 fuck you. Like, like we're, we're, we're going to continue doing our shit, blah, blah, blah. But, but, and I love girl, this don't get me wrong, but in a, in a way, chokehold is sort of critiquing that youth crew culture, right? They're like, where it's like, okay, we're all for having fun. We're all for being united and like whatever, but it's like, you know, uh, doing it for the kids, you're full of shit, I think is a line. In the song. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and it's like, there is, uh, doing it for the kids was a huge talking point during this era. And the idea was, it's like, to them, hardcore and straight edge were political acts. And now some people might say that's, that's ridiculous, I don't agree with that. And I actually don't think you necessarily have to think that. But I do think that there is something very, very valuable in not getting so wrapped up in uh, in this idea that, you know, whatever sort of thing you've chosen to be the thing you must associate you, with, yourself with is the most important thing in the world. And there absolutely was a cult of straight edge at the time. And, uh, you know, I say like, you know, I, I it. It, there was this was a critique of the scene in a very very important way but also it's talking about the potential that the scene has flat out saying this this scene has potential it you know it it doesn't just have to be like a a lifestyle cult this doesn't have to be like the equivalent of like uh you know uh, i don't know if you ever saw that netflix documentary wild country with uh the Bogwan Osho or whatever, but you, it's not like you're, you, 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 it doesn't have to be like the equivalent of like an Eastern mysticism cult where like the X on your hand becomes the center of everything and the answer for every question in life. That's, it's very, very important not to think that way. And at the time there were a lot of people who did think that way. I'm sad to say. Uh, and ironically, uh, virtually none of those people are straight edge anymore. 
in my experience. Ultimately, um, these are the kinds of songs that keep me coming back to this genre because, you know, whether it's an album like this that I thoroughly enjoyed, and, you know, it was a band, I, I don't know if I said this or not, but it was a band I was completely unfamiliar with. I had heard of them because, and whether it's fair or not, I had I, I knew they were at least similar in some extent to earth crisis. And when I, you know, discovered earth crisis a few months ago, I did a a ton of reading on them just because they really intrigued me. But like, whether it's a band like have heart and Pat Flynn, who preaches a very positive message on how, you know, hardcore, there should be an, an aura of danger because of the way the music is presented, but nobody should ever actually be put in harm or whether it's, you know, one of my favorite bands of all time. And I don't know if you're familiar with them because they're a little bit more current, but like Touche Amore, I find a lot of uh, just questioning of oneself, ways to deal with mental health and anxiety, just making sure you are leaving your mark on this earth in some way. Like I am finding comfort in those messages and it goes all the way back to Minor Threat, who as soon as I saw them in the CM Punk documentary, I you know at twelve or thirteen I said, okay, I'm straight edge now. Uh, these are the coolest dudes ever. And you know, at times in my life, I've listened to you know I, I go through ebbs and flows of really diving into hardcore music, but I know it is always there for me when I'm dissatisfied with my life in some way, or and, and it sounds dumb, especially. I think saying this about any music might sound dumb, but especially hardcore, people just don't get it. But like, if I'm unsatisfied with my life and I need some sort of guidance, like there's an, I know there's going to be an album out there, whether it's Embrace or it's, you know, Touche Mori Stage 4, whatever it is, that can put me on a path that I feel is comfortable. And, I, and it feels like Chokehold was a similar thing for you. I think that's, yes, that's very true. I, I there, there, there is something, I mean, this kind of stuff gets crazy overused when people talk about art. Um, and I think there's a lot of, I think it's very easily easy to cynically engage with the comment that I'm about to make, but the, the hardcore scene legitimately changed my life and probably kept me alive and out of prison. And, uh, I mean, I mean, almost assuredly, I mean, it got me close to prison a couple of times too, <laughs> to be honest, but, but it, it, you know, I don't know, uh, you know, I in, in the neighborhood I grew up grew up in, um, a lot of the people I grew up with are dead or in prison right now, uh, and I didn't even grow up in a bad area. I grew up like in a normal like working class uh, suburb in Charleston, South Carolina, but like opioids have destroyed it, you know. And uh, like you know, my 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 brother, I'm the oldest of four boys. The, my brother, who's the closest to me in age. You know, he committed suicide a couple of years ago, almost two years ago now. Uh, and a bunch of people from his generation also from that same neighborhood um, are, are no longer with us. You know, some of my some of my good friends. In fact, one of the skaters who gave, uh, played, a, played a tape for me the first time is on that list. And, you know, I, I look back and I think if I had not gotten as you know deep into hardcore as i did like where would i have ended up i i don't know man i don't know if i'd be here uh I, you know i don't know if i'd be walking around as a free person at the bare minimum because i had a lot of rage i had a lot of anger um and i you know i've struggled with those problems my entire life but hard, hardcore was a huge 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 outlet for that and i think overwhelmingly a positive one and you know I'm old now. Like you're not going to see me at a hard. Well, that's not true. I, I, I the right hardcore show I would still go to. You know what I mean? Like um, that doesn't ever fully get out of your bloodstream. It just doesn't yeah, because there's nothing like it. Period. I don't I don't care what anybody says. There's absolutely nothing like it. But 
it, it it's it's hard to know where my life would be and chokehold to me is you know to me almost the perfect encapsulation of what the hardcore scene that I grew up in could should and could be at its absolute best if that makes sense like at, at, like there and there are things about chokehold I don't like believe me uh, and if you ever saw a chokehold set during their peak man there was definitely some 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 uh uh god damn just play the next song type type <laughs> stuff you know like i mean don't get like i'm not gonna sit here and say there wasn't but there was nothing like they were just a huge huge hugely important band and i, I you know i have always said that this is my pick for the best hardcore album ever i've said it probably legitimately i've probably said it since 1990 five <laughs> like when it came out like like i i don't know if there's ever been a point where this wouldn't have been my pick now there it's not my favorite album of all time um there there are some other and and one other album that is some people would argue is a hardcore album and i think that gets into where you start to split hairs about emo versus hardcore and things like that but but uh it to me it's the best hardcore album of its type well then i'll phrase this as a two-part question because i think i know your answer to the first part but if you, ha- if you had to rate this album out of 10, and luckily we're doing out of 10 here, we're not doing star ratings to make your mind uh, at ease a little bit, but if you had to rate it out of 10, what are you giving this? And then I want to know, just to put yourself in, in the position of maybe the first time you heard this and how much comfort it brought you, who needs to hear this album and why? Um, so, I this it I, it's so ridiculous to go ten out of ten, but I can't not. No, go ten like, out of ten. Like, I like, can like, hear it like, in your voice like, that you want to go like, ten out of ten. There are like if you if you go to look at my thread on Twitter at Dylan Waco, that's D Y L A N W A C O. There's plenty of albums in that thread. I think I'm up to like 106 or 107 because I'm doing one for every day as we record this, and it's pinned to the top of my page. You can just scroll up and see what I have. That would not be a ten. Okay. There's even some on there that might be like a six or a seven. Right. <laughs> There's a handful that aren't even like tip top favorites for me. But I can't not, I just can't not have this at 10. I, I just, it, it's, it's genre defining to me. Uh, and I think it is the best at what it does. Uh, and to me, that's, that's 10. Um, as far as who should listen to it. Well, if you're somebody who is a fan of contemporary hardcore, you should absolutely listen to it if you never have, because I think it's a hugely important record. Um, I think Chokehold is one of those sort of velvet underground type bands where the, you know, the whole meme is, uh, you know, um, like maybe a ton of people didn't listen to them at their peak, but everybody who listened to them went on to form a band. That's kind of how Chokehold was, I think. I think their their influence kind of had a bigger impact than they did in a way. Uh, I, so I think if you're into that, you should listen to them. I also feel like if you're somebody who wants to know what the 90s sort of subculture scene in general doesn't even necessarily like if you're somebody who has an observational interest um in what was going on below the surface in the sort of diy spaces um and the sort of frankly unregulated and largely ungoverned independent music world or independent art world in the mid 90s i think chokehold is a great band to study because I think there's all sorts of things that you can learn from what they're doing, whether it be their use of samples, which at the time was very, very different than other hardcore bands. And also the fact that so much of what their lyrics are about and so much of their approach is critical, both of the external world, which you would expect from a subcultural 
something that's in a subcultural movement, but also critical of what else is going on within those subcultural boundaries. So I think it's I think they're a very interesting band for that reason, too. So I, I would I would highly recommend them to like modern fans of hardcore and punk, particularly if you're if you're into the political stuff, although not exclusively, um, and, and, but also very, very much to people who sort of have an interest in like, you know, things that uh, were sort of beneath the surface of pop culture in the 1990s. Dylan, thank you so much for coming on. This was such a blast. I I really enjoyed the history lesson you gave me on the 90s scene. I, this is exactly what I was hoping it would be and so much more. Before we go, is there anything you want to plug? So uh, this is very shameless case, but I'm going to plug my employer. Go and for I'm going to plug. And I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to plug my employer in the context actually of of this music space because to me I'm heavily involved in independent wrestling and one of the reasons why is because I think it's the closest thing to to that hardcore scene for me. I get much of the same energy, much of the same drive, much of the same purpose, enthusiasm, excitement, etc. From it, I work for a company called IndependentWrestling.tv, IWTV, and we have tons of independent professional wrestling from literally all over the world available on the service for $10 a month. They pay me. They pay me well. It's a real job. It's not something I do as a hobby. They take care of me. They're good employers, and they're just a really good company that is doing a lot of good work to try to help another independent subculture that is important to get more eyes on it, and frankly, in a major national crisis to, to you know continue churning out uh, content and getting eyes on content from, frankly, a lot of smaller businesses and in some cases outright, in my mind, revolutionary businesses that are, uh, you know, suffering through a very tough time like all of us are. So check out IWTV. You can also follow me on Twitter and the aforementioned, of course, thread of doom pinned to the top of my page album of the day uh, thread uh, over there at Dylan Waco. That's D-Y-L-A-N-W-A-C-O. There's a lot of stuff on there. Almost everything I've put in that thread is a hardcore punk band, not necessarily from the 90s, but disproportionately from the 90s. Uh, but there's some other stuff in there. I, I, I mix it up a little bit. I threw like a John Moreland album in there one time, some other things. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of big into the alt country stuff too. So um, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a mix of things. But uh, if you want more of my um, endorsements and uh, music, you should check that out. And uh, you should shame Kaysen to having me back because I really enjoyed doing this. Well, you can find me on both Twitter and Instagram at underscore case low C A S E L O W E. And you can find the podcast on Instagram at art school albums. I want to thank Dylan once again for being on. And this has been the art school albums podcast chokeholds content with dying. But wait, God isn't dead. His truth still stands. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. And God isn't mocked, for whatsoever a man sows, that shall he also reap. This nation has sown the seeds of sin and rebellion against God. But what of the harvest? What of the horrible harvest that we shall certainly reap?